The goal of the podcast to this point, the other two episodes on race, I mean, has been to share the, the landscape surrounding this particular topic. I don't think that it's wise for us to just launch into the subject and just kind of start talking about it without establishing that landscape because we need to understand what this topic is, why it matters, how it still influences us to the present, uh, some ways that it impacts various individuals, some ways that it impacts really the culture and the shape of the American South. With all of that established, now we can move into some of the history. And I'm going to do this in brief, and the reason I'm going to do it in brief is because there are many other resources out there, including, by the way, if you're in the class, you're you're already doing this reading. So I'm just going to give really an overview because, again, there are so many other terrific resources that can do this history more justice than I can. A couple of them very quickly, or the, I, I should say one of them that I have most admired recently uh, would be Crash Course History. And uh, there's a really excellent um, series right now on Black American history, which is very much tied to the American South. That's on YouTube. Uh, it's hosted by Clint Smith, and I would highly encourage you to go and listen to those episodes because they're truly well done, and they're quite wonderful uh, to listen to and to discover the history of this topic across our, our region and our nation. But we're going to cover this again in brief in this episode. I'm going to give you the overview. This episode is going to cover really from the early Jamestown colony all the way up through the American Civil War. Let's get started. Let me say at the outset of this particular episode that this topic is pretty heavy. And because it's heavy, um, I have, in the years that I've been doing this, I have seen students react to this in a very profound and um, um, deeply emotional ways. I have seen students in the class who were not aware of this information who have um, started crying. And I, I understand that sentiment. I, I really do. Because again, this is heavy. And because it's heavy, I want to give you that warning here at the very start. Okay, let's let's kind of get into the history. Let's go back to Jamestown and think just for a little while about what race would have been like in Jamestown. The Jamestown colonists arrived at least ostensibly in order to uh, convert people to Christianity. Um, there is, if you've never you know, paused to think about it before, you are let's just, you put yourself in the shoes of a european you you're european you arrive on this you know massive continent now you know it's a massive continent and there are all of these people on this continent who do not believe in your faith uh, according to your faith that means that these people are in danger of going to hell and that means that you need to convert them as fast as possible um that's that's it in a nutshell but the, by the way the flip side of this is you want to convert them because this uh this somewhat threatens your faith if there are you know millions of people on this continent who have never heard of your faith um you know what does that mean about your faith so there, there's that underlying question and that's why it guided the spanish the portuguese the english the french a whole number of people to come over um and to say you know we're, we're here we're going to convert you we're going to save you we're going to help you and and so forth and so on um, you know, and there are all kinds of horror stories about that as well. So, for example, just to, to give one, um, some Europeans would come over and, and open, a, you know, a scroll and, and read the scroll. And essentially it would say something along the lines of, um, we're here to save you. And if you resist us, then, you know, we, we find it in our, our, our power to be able to annihilate you. 
but they would be reading it toward the trees. So yeah, that's that's the kind of of um, uh, thought process that would go into this situation at the outset. But let's go back to the Jamestown colony. Now again, the Jamestown colony. Uh, has come along into this area after the Spanish had already arrived. The Spanish had attempted to set up uh, a, a, you know, a, a way to be able to convert people around about the Jamestown area. Some of the, the natives in that area, you know, had slaughtered those individuals. And so when the Jamestown colonists showed up, they thought, oh, well, they're here to get revenge because, you know, the Native Americans can't tell the difference, understandably, between the Spanish and the English because they're all just Europeans on big boats to them. So they... they uh, the Jamestown colonists set up, they set up, you know, their area, and really, at this point, race is just us versus them. We're here, they're out there, we're in our fort, they're out there outside the fort, they're, you know, attempting to kill us. Um, you know, when John Smith was in charge, it was a very di different kind of circumstance than once he had left, after they tried to assassinate him. Uh, so, you know, you have these Native Americans outside, and, and they are hemming these other individuals in. Now, Again, that us versus them mentality. But once we get past that point and once uh, individuals start to interact, the English are aware of the the labor that uh, that the Spanish and the Portuguese are using. And so they they decide that they have to, you know, to take part in this as well. That this is one of the the reasons. There are many other reasons, but this is one of the reasons as well. Um, you know, and, and by the way, it's more complicated. I'm trying to make this as simple as possible. Uh, they had you know, slave labor plantations in the Caribbean and you know, parts of the South, such as North and South Carolina. When they decided to move plantations into this area, they were sort of extensions of the Caribbean colonies. And so they, they extended that slave labor into this area. But again, that, that carries us um, from 1619 forward, right? That's, that's when the first slaves arrive into the Jamestown colony. But that's not the first attempt that people made to enact slavery. Um, they... So that what they would do is attempt to enslave the Native American population as well. This is something that is not often focused on in textbooks, but it, it essentially boils down to this. If you enslave the Native American population and uh, they, they're forced into work, if they run away, they have a pretty good chance of surviving, right? So imagine, for example, um, if you force you know the Germans into working, and they're they're being forced into working in Spain. If they escape, there's a pretty good chance that they can negotiate with the Spanish, the other Spanish in the area, uh, in order to be able to return to to Germany. And it's the same thing. There's a pretty good chance that these people can survive. They know the land. They can get away. They uh, they know the languages. There, there's a good chance that they know the languages. I should say, and they know the customs. And they kept escaping. And so it was very difficult for the Europeans to be able to use this kind of, of slave labor. So they bought into the Spanish-Portuguese system, which is they began to bring Africans in uh, from outside and to use them in forced labor in order to uh, to be able to harvest crops. This, uh, this system was a little bit simpler because, you know, if Africans got away, then they don't know the landscape. They don't know the people out there, the people out there in the woods, the Native Americans, I mean, uh, don't know them because they're all you know, in, invaders, they're all people who are here on land that traditionally belonged to Native Americans. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's all the same to them. So that, that makes the system a little bit simpler. But this also solves a different problem. Let's talk about that problem. Okay, so why would this system creep into the, the English colonies? 
again, because it solves a different problem. Now, back in the episode on the, um, the economic, uh, economic situation of the American South, I talked about how the economy underpins every single other concept. And here we are again, talking about the economy. So that's why I always start that way. You had indentured servants at this time. And so the indentured servants are coming to the American South and they're eventually earning their freedom after you know a brief period of time where a lot of them were dying, but eventually they start earning their freedom. And once they earn their freedom, they could either sign up for another contract or they could you know, go out and try to make their own life. Well, the problem with that is that there's not much land. And so, because the land is already you know, being taken up by you know, people who own that land. And so if they go out into the woods and they, they begin you know, shooting creatures or something to eat, um, then they are poaching. Eventually this results in uh, a feeling of dissatisfaction among those individuals, these people who were former indentured servants, because once you reach a kind of critical mass of individuals like that, you're bound to have a rebellion. And I, you know, just as a quick example, Bacon's Rebellion is a really good example of that type of, of uh, response. You have you know, dissatisfied individuals who are revolting against others who, who own the land and so forth and so on. You know, by that time, of course, you did have slaves. But by the time that the slave system is introduced and by the time it, it's heavily leaned into, um, the the poor indentured servants during this particular time period had a great deal in common with the slaves. And uh, by beginning to pit the poor, let's face it, poor European indentured servants against the slaves that were introduced into the colonies, you created, a, like the, these individuals, the people in charge, created a situation where the poor indentured servants sold themselves at least better than the slaves. And so they began to turn against them and not see that their interests were often aligned. And that is a situation that plays out over and over and over again in the South. <clears throat> uh, slaves and uh, just poor poor whites um, had a great deal in common, more in common than they did uh, separate, but uh, those in charge would turn the poor whites against slaves or former slaves in order to uh, to make them feel a little bit more elevated, which is at the heart of some of the, the racist tendencies that emerged, by the way, along with some of the other things I discussed in the last episode as well. So that, that sets the stage a little bit, but I also want to talk about where these slaves came from, because that's that's an entire other topic we need to deal with. Okay, so the slaves that were brought into the New World came from West Africa. And uh, let's go ahead and, and hit one thing head on. Yes, these uh, African people were traded to Europeans from other African people, but we need to understand the situation to be able to understand why that is the case. Uh, let's do just a very brief history. Um, Africa was a place of immense empires, immense rich empires, places like Songhai. And those empires eventually uh, began to collapse. When they did, a lot of um, those massive empires collapsed into feuding warlords or feuding territories. And if you have, let's just say, you know, to pick a round number, let's say that you have five total territories, right? And uh, those five territories are in competition with each other. You know, sometimes they're aligned, sometimes they're at each other's throats, just exactly like the history of Europe. People are behaving like people. Imagine that. So um, this is the situation. They would take slaves from other uh, groups, but according to the tradition of, of Africa, they would treat them well. So, you know, our notion of slavery was not the same notion of slavery to them. 
people were not bound, they were not changed. They oftentimes would eat at the same table um, as the people who owned them. Um, sometimes they would sell themselves into labor in order to be able to pay off a debt. And uh, they were treated like human beings and they were well respected. Um, that's not to say that, you know, they weren't kidnappings and things like that. Alado Aquiano, and uh, I had mentioned his name before, and I, you know, I, again, I apologize if I'm saying it the wrong way, but that's the way I've always heard it. Alado Aquiano does a really great job of explaining this in his own personal account. Um, he says that he and his sister were kidnapped and that they were taken to a different place. Um, and he was, you know, uh, asked to do things. He was asked to perform labor. But uh, in one specific instance, he takes great pains to explain that he killed a chicken with a rock. Uh, he says a pebble, but you know, that's, a, I mean, come on, you have to throw a rock to be able to kill a chicken. It's not a pebble. So he kills a chicken. Uh, he freaks out. He runs away. He hides. Um, he's in a bit of a panic because he thinks, you know, what if I get killed out here? And he comes back and uh, the person who owns him briefly admonishes him. He's not beaten or anything like that. So he goes to great pains to explain that because he wants his audience to be able to see that slaves in Africa were treated radically differently than slaves in the New World. So uh, let's just stay with Aquiano for a second. Aquiano is, again, captured, but he's, he's taken down to the coast and he's traded on the coast to some Europeans. Now, in his account, he says, you know, I've never seen a white person before. And I was freaked out because I thought they were ghosts and they had these big ships and the ships seemed to move on their own. And I thought it was like magic. And then I saw a painting and you know, he just describes all of this stuff. He, but he's completely freaking out until somebody who speaks, you know, his particular dialect, his particular language says to him, we're just going to go work. And he, he says, very clearly says, oh, well, if it's going to be nothing but work, then that's okay. And the reason he says this is because he's thinking of it in terms of African treatment of African slaves. He doesn't have a concept yet of how uh, Europeans tend to treat slaves. And so his relief is you know, somewhat short-lived because then he, he comes to the new world and he begins to experience um, the European treatment of individuals. But again, that, that gives you an idea. So if, it, if you've ever heard, well, Africans are enslaved, yes, that's true. But I hope now that you see that that's, um, that's disingenuous because that's presenting only half of it. Why would Africans trade African people, other Africans, to Europeans? Well, let's go back to that, those five groups I mentioned just a second ago. If you're competing with those other groups and the Europeans show up and they have, um, as Jared Diamond calls it, uh, guns and ger uh, well, guns and steel, right? We'll skip the germs part, but guns and steel, uh, this is something that you would want because let's face it, if you're in tribe number one and you go and steal people from tribe number two, you can trade those people. Now you've, you've reduced the number of people in tribe number two, and you now have weapons that you can compete with tribe number two, three, four, and five. So you're in a better position overall. So why would they trade people? Because they're looking for that edge. They're looking to survive as a group. They're looking, again, to do what people have been doing um, in worldwide and cultures for as long as people have existed. By the way, if you've ever seen uh, the movie, it's an older movie at this point, Amistad. Amistad does a pretty good job of showing a good number of these things uh, in inside the movie itself. It also get, does a good job of tastefully, and in some ways tastefully, showing the conditions of the middle passage. Let's talk about that. Now, this is important for several different reasons, but let me try to paint a bit of a mental picture for you just for a second since this is a podcast. If we have a ship and it's in Europe, we would travel from Europe to Africa. That's number one. 
from Africa to the New World is number two, and from the New World back to Europe would be number three. So you can see that this is a triangular trade route. You would take goods from Europe to Africa, trade them, get people, take people from Africa to the New World, trade them, get raw materials, take those raw materials back to Europe, and then again, trade. And so you're making money at every single stop. You're not just going to get people, you're trading at every single port. And uh, this is a money-making venture. The middle passage is number two. It is not one and not three. It is not the full journey. It is number two. It is culturally significant to the American South because that is the route that people of African descent took to be able to get to the New World. Um, I sometimes um, quip and, and say that, uh, you know, in all the time I've been studying this and all the time I've been reading about the American South, I have yet to hear a story where a single African person volunteered to be on that boat and to get on the boat and to come all the way to the New World. These people were taken. Uh, they were taken, you know, either by force or they were traded, uh, most likely traded. The reason that they were most likely traded is, you know, what I've, I've indicated before. If you're a European and you stop and you, you know, you're, you're looking for, to load your boat up with a bunch of people in order to take them to the new world to trade them, you can't go into the African interior because it's very obvious that you don't belong there. And uh, it's the same thing as, you know, what I just said in reverse about uh, North America. It's very obvious that those people don't belong there. North Americans recognize them on site because they, they look different. This is the exact same thing. If Europeans go into the African interior to get uh, people on their own, that did not go well for them. Um, you know, the Dutch tried it a couple different times, uh, the Portuguese, again, Spanish, so forth and so on. It just doesn't work because, uh, it, you know, if they're out prowling about for individuals, they don't know the politics, they don't know the area, and uh, they just basically make themselves targets. In addition to that, they also don't have uh, some of the resistances that Africans do. I had mentioned before that uh, African people, for example, or people of African descent, I should say, um, have the uh, a greater resistance to malaria than do people of European descent. And the reason is because of the mutation I had mentioned, but here's where that really, you know, the tires hit the road, so to speak, because Europeans cannot go into Africa. If they spent too long in port, in Africa, the tendency was that uh, the people on, the, on board the ship would begin to get sick. So they did not like to dwell. They liked to show up, load up their ship, and get out of there as fast as possible for those reasons. This brings me to the Middle Passage itself. The Middle Passage took something like, with faster ships, six to eight weeks. People were packed in, as one observer said, uh, people you know, in the hold of the ship. A corpse had more room than did these people. So they were packed in tightly. They were bound in there, uh, hand and foot. There was no consideration for their comfort. Uh, if they showed up with clothes, great. If they didn't have them, well, too bad. They were bound into place. Uh, they were very rarely, uh, if ever, let out. Uh, again, going back to Aquiano, Aquiano was allowed to go at, uh, to the top of the ship because he was very young when he took the middle passage. But most people were bound down there. Now, what you, I hope, hear in this is that there are no bathroom breaks. There's no pausing. There's no letting people out for air. They are bound into this position, oftentimes with their leg bent, legs bent um, right up against somebody else for six to eight weeks in oftentimes sweltering conditions. 
Uh, many of them had never been on a ship before. So, you know, imagine being on this little tiny ship that's being tossed all over the place because these are not the large cruise ships that some of you out there listening may have been on before. So it's getting tossed around quite a bit. That means that people are getting sick and they're urinating and they're defecating. And uh, that, that uh, material stays in place for that entire trip. I believe it was Herman Melville who said that you could smell a slave ship before you could see it. And that's what he meant. And by the way, Melville is saying this as someone who traveled on board whaling ships. So you can imagine what a whaling ship smelled like because, you know, you have a carcass of a whale inside the whaling ship. So for him to say, you know, you could smell the slave ship before you could see it is, is uh, it's kind of a testament to how awful the conditions were. Aquiano also mentions, you know, when he was forced to go below that he, he would retch because he could not stand the smell. Uh, people were given the minimum minimal food that they needed to be able to stay alive. And uh, if somebody died down the air, oftentimes they would just leave the carcass, uh, leave the, bar the body down the air because, you know, there's, there's really no reason for them to go down there and move it. In fact, they could endanger themselves because quite frankly, they oftentimes had a small group of people in charge of a boat with, you know, several dozen, if not hundreds of people down below. Um, another part of this, and this is another unfortunate thing that we have to confront as a part of discussing this topic, is that uh, you had men, and men were running the ship. And this is in the days before you know, PlayStations and Xboxes and TV and things like that. And so men on a boat for six to eight weeks who are bored, um, unfortunately, they, they took liberties with the uh, the people in the hold and they would go down there and if there were females down there they would go down there and rape them um i mention this because it's it's part of the middle passage it's part of that you know the journey and understanding it again going back to the movie amistad amistad does a, a really good job of showing all of this and even showing the uh, the the rape idea uh, does it in a, a tasteful way that is easy to overlook because you know the average audience watching it might not catch it. But when um, the the individuals at the top of the ship begin dancing with a bunch of women, and the women don't seem to want to dance, that is a um, a way to show that information without actually showing that information. That's just the first part of the journey, though. Um, once individuals arrived in the new world. They would oftentimes arrive in you know, the, the Caribbean where they would be um, divided up or auctioned off at this particular location or shifted into other locations, places like Charleston and Savannah. Uh, if you go to those areas today, you can still see where those auctions took place. But when they arrived, they were oftentimes uh, covered with grease or oil in order to make them look more uh, much healthier than they were. The reason is, is because after six to eight weeks in a cargo hold in putrid conditions, with the minimum amount of food required to keep that person alive, they were quite sick. And so they, they were greased up in order to, uh, to make them look uh, healthier than they were. But once they arrived at the new world, once they arrived on the location that they, where they were gonna work, that's when uh, a whole other sort of torture began. I equate this sometimes with, imagine that you're sitting here listening to the podcast right now, wherever that happens to be. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to take a guess and say that you're in a place with a roof. Now, let's say that suddenly the roof is ripped off and aliens 
you know, grab you and they, they put you on their spaceship and they just take off. And these are aliens from Pluto. So they're, they're far away, but they're inside the same solar system. And they, they take you to Pluto and you're, you know, you're going to be forced to work there. <clears throat> Imagine what that's like. Just picture it for a second. All the people that you're leaving behind right now, all the people you're not going to be able to tell goodbye to, all the people that you suddenly realize you're never going to see again, um, they are just far enough away because you know Pluto to Earth, that's, that's far. You're not going to make that back without some kind of alien technology. They're just far enough away that you're never going to see them again, but just close enough to where you feel somewhat tortured that if I could just get back to them, if I could just try hard enough, maybe maybe I could get back. <clears throat> and that's, again, the, the next set of torture that would begin, so to speak. Um, you would have slave breakers, and these would be people who uh, would get these new slaves to understand their role in life, so to speak. Um, these These would teach them the bare minimum language need bare minimum language needed uh, to be able to get them to work things like go stop here there left right so forth and so on and you're also by the way and speaking as a linguist for a second you're talking about two completely different language groups uh, just as a quick example english has a glottal stop h ha ha but uh, a lot of African dialects have multiple glottal, glottal stops. And, uh, you know, I'm not even going to try to emulate them because as, a, as an American and an English speaker, um, this is outside my king to be able to, to be able to give to you. But it gives you an idea of how difficult it would be for people from a completely different language group to be able to learn a language that is, again, foreign to them. So they're, they're learning a language. They're learning the skills that they need. They're learning who's in charge of learning that they're never going to be able to go back home again because to this point maybe they have some kind of hope some people on the trip would give up hope um in fact some people on the trip would give up hope uh to the point where they begin to put up nets on the sides of the ship so that if somebody tried to jump off the ship they could catch them and bring them back uh some people did succeed and they would succeed in jumping off the ship on the metal passage and they would kill themselves for those who fell into the net oftentimes they were dragged back onto the ship and beaten sometimes beaten to death um, when they were beaten to death, again, Amistad shows this, they were beaten to death in front of others as a warning. Don't jump off the ship because if you if you don't kill yourself, we're going to kill you. Right. And we're going to make it that much worse on you. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, you have that idea playing out in the new world as well. And once they go through this system, you know, they're set up. They're never going back. They realize that they're never going back. They realize uh, that the slavery here and the new world is radically different than the slavery that they had experienced where they were from. And that brings us full circle back to where, where I started, which is, you know, what was, um, what was the race landscape like back in the Jamestown colony? That gives you an idea. That gives you an idea of how the entire situation began to play out really from the beginning, all the way up to, you know, Africans arriving into the, into the area. What I've just described was more or less stable. Um, now, you know, there are a lot of nuances to this. Um, clearly, at, at one point, they stopped trading uh, slaves with Africa, but more or less stayed stable for a good long period of time. Um, because once you get a system in place, there's really no reason to adjust that system. But even so, let's look at a couple of other things. When I do this lecture in my class, 
I have two slides and they set out a number of laws that were enacted in order to be able to control the people who were enslaved. Um, one of the early laws is, you know, from 1661, first law to recognize a lifelong servitude. And then the very next year, you have a law that's called filius nullius. And that says that the child of a slave must follow the mother's condition. And this this uh, law comes five years before they uh, they close the gap for, again, like I'd mentioned in the last episode, if a slave converted to Christianity, they could earn their freedom because you can't, one Christian cannot enslave another Christian. Uh, so they close that loophole. It comes before, um, you know, that they begin to define slavery further. Um, 1669, they gave the right of life and death over uh, to a, a slaveholder. Um, they began to expand that to other individuals uh, in 1705. But again, think about that, 1662. So, you know, seven years before what we tend to think of one of the most heinous laws uh, concerning slavery. And the reason I, I point this out is because I will have students sometimes say, well, okay, yeah, like, you know, slave owners were, you know, maybe raping um, slaves, but it couldn't have been that bad, right? Well, to that, I would say, if one of the very first laws, you know, that, that's, uh, that I outlined here is filius nullius, that the child must follow the mother's condition, that shows how prevalent this was, how widespread this was. Um, it's endemic. It, it is something that uh, took place quite a bit. And that's what really that law is. It closes the loophole of if you are a slave owner and you rape your slave and then she becomes pregnant, then that would mean that that, that person's offspring uh, could very well have a claim on your estate. So they, they are passing a law. They're closing this legal loophole to prevent that from happening. If you've read Frederick Douglass, if you've read Harriet Jacobs, um, they they go to great lengths to be able to, to convey those ideas, especially Jacobs. Jacobs lived it. Um, one of the phrases that always sticks with me is she said that they had her prematurely knowing. And if you go and listen to my other podcast from English 231, you know that unpacks that a little bit more. But prematurely knowing is a sort of double-sided way of saying knowing from the Bible, as in <clears throat> Adam knew Eve, and then Eve gave birth. So prematurely knowing in this case means that from her teen years, um, her, her slave owner, Dr. Flint, was uh, making sexual advances to her. And that's, again, I'm pointing this out because I want you to understand the gravity of it. I want you to understand how bad things were. And I, I had mentioned that at the last, uh, at the end of the last episode as well. Um, we are confronting this as a, as a part of a college class. This is, you know, removing the veneer of it, you know, because sometimes it's passed over in middle and high school. Understandably, I think that people are maybe a bit too young at that point, but this is a college class. And we need to be able to confront these these hard things and just say that this is part of the history of the American South. And if we're going to really be able to confront that history together, as I said in this first episode in the, the section on race, we have to be able to talk about these things and acknowledge that they happened and then uh, be able to confront them and then uh, move forward. Okay, if I had a lot more time, and maybe in the future I'll come back and revisit this and really do episodes where I can dive deep into some of these things, I would talk about the way in which, you know, slaves did not just take this lying down. Uh, they resisted in small and large ways. Uh, there were rebellions such as the Stoner Rebellion, uh, the Nat Turner Rebellion. Uh, those were some of the big ways that, that uh, slaves resisted, and they did not go very well. 
Um, and I, again, I would encourage you to go and listen to Crash Course History. He does a really great job of unpacking those ideas. Uh, but they resisted in small ways as well, just you know, stealing something, stealing a pen um, or ink or something of that nature. And I have students that will sometimes ask me, well, why would they do that? I mean, they don't really need it. No, they don't need it. But that gives them just that little tiny you know, bit of, ha, look what I did. Look what I pulled over on you and after all the things that you know you've done to me or my family or, or what have you uh look what i did right and so that's that's one way in which again the slaves resisted but a good number of them and I'm, I'm sorry to say this a good number of them it never occurred to them that they should resist and that is because um ideological controls are being used in order to uh to keep them in place these are they're basically tricking them into thinking that they they should just behave in the way that they do I mentioned in the last episode, this is actually why I set out the groundwork, that people would convert them to Christianity after, you know, closing that, that gap that I mentioned just a couple minutes ago. Uh, they would convert them to Christianity in order to, hey, you guys are like the Israelites, the meek shall inherit the earth. You, uh, This is just the way things are, and it's uh, according to God's plan, so you should follow along with that. Um, another example of that is on Christmas, they would, uh, slave owners would allow them to get drunk or at certain other times during the year, and they would get them drunk on really cheap stuff. And the difference between cheap liquor and expensive liquor is oftentimes the way you feel the next day. And so they would get them drunk on really cheap stuff. And the next day they would wake up and they would feel awful. And, you know, then they would, they would twist it. Oh gosh, you guys feel awful. Well, you know, it's just expected. We have to drink all the time. Um, so we feel like this a lot and, you know, never explaining above and beyond that. Uh, Frederick Douglass also notes in his autobiography that, you know, if, if they would try to improve themselves by trying to improve their minds, by trying to learn to read and write, by trying to understand the Bible, that was discouraged. What the slave owners wanted them to do is to go out and, you know, have a good time and get drunk and, and uh, get into fistfights and things like that, because they knew that that was a release valve that if they could blow off some steam, that that would mean that uh, that they would be less likely to revolt. Uh, another great example would be uh, corn shucking. Corn shucking is when you get a bunch of people together and they, you know, they do exactly that. They shuck the corn. But this goes back to an almost Shakespearean idea of if you compete it, if you, if you made it into a competition and everybody, uh, you know, shucked as much corn as possible, as fast as possible, then the winner would get to make fun of the slave owner for a brief period of time. Well, that's that's insidious. I mean, you get your corn chucked at a fast rate and you only suffer a little minor bit of indignity uh, in order to do this. You, you're not really necessarily paying them. You might you know, get some food or something like that to them. But again, you're, you're encouraging them to do something that benefits you, but you're making it look like it benefits them. And uh, that, those kinds of controls were used because they were easier to use than you know, following them around all the time, whipping them. Uh, just one final one, uh, Frederick Douglass also notes in his autobiography that a man named Covey would follow them around and he would go hide somewhere out in the field. And uh, then he would pop out and say like, you guys could work harder. And then he would you know, go hide again. And Douglas said that it got into his head so that even when he knew the guy was gone, he still felt like maybe he was around somewhere. And so he would keep working as hard as possible. Again, that goes back as well to the Panopticon thing I talked about before. The perfect prison is the prison where the prisoner is watching him or herself rather than somebody else. 
watching that prisoner. Okay, and that brings me close to the end of this episode. The last thing I want to talk about in brief, very briefly, um, would be the American Civil War. This is a class in Southern culture. It is not a class in the American Civil War. And as such, I don't spend that much time talking about the American Civil War. Instead, I talk about the effects of the American Civil War. Um, I talk about the impact that it had on the, the culture of the South rather than the event itself. And again, the reason is, is because there are really great courses out there dedicated to the history of the American Civil War. You could spend 16 weeks discussing it. Uh, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to talk about it in, in kind of a broad sense, especially as it relates to your race and slavery. So let's do that right now, again, in brief. Um, I want to lay out some basic terminology. Over the, all the years I've been doing this, I realized that a lot of people don't have this basic terminology about the American Civil War. The Union would be, roughly speaking, the North. The Confederacy would be, roughly speaking, the South. Secede, S-E-C-E-D-E, is not the same thing as succeed, which is S-U-C-C-E-D. Um, that is secede, is to break away. And that is what the, uh, the South did, beginning with South Carolina. Um, and so it seceded from the North and came to form the Confederacy. The North wanted to preserve the Union, and uh, so went about doing so. They did not start with the Emancipation Proclamation that was issued about halfway through the war, um, two times, and it was issued at a time when Abraham Lincoln was attempting to bolster the moral argument and the morale of individuals in the North. And I, I just want to mention that because you know, people think, oh, well, the American Civil War started with, you know, this or that or the other, or this was toward the beginning. It was not toward the beginning. It was out a little bit getting toward the middle of it. Uh, and, and for the reasons that I had just mentioned a second ago, um, oftentimes talk about the reason that the American Civil War started. And, you know, I'll have a discussion with the class. Uh, was it because of slavery or the economy or, you know, beliefs or values and things like that? And I'll have some people say, well, it was because of the economy. What was the economy? Well, it was a slave-based economy. Okay, what, what about beliefs and values? Well, yeah, it was the belief in states' rights. What did the states want the right to do? The state, uh, states wanted the right to be able to own and maintain slaves. If you go to the South Carolina Declaration of Secession in 1860, for example, and uh, you can find this document online, and you just search the document, use Control-F uh, for the word slave, the word slave is mentioned 15 times inside of that document. So if we're talking about beliefs and values and whatnot, um, and if we're talking about the economy, I mean, yeah, we can say that those are reasons, but at heart, uh, those inevitably tie back to slavery. The South had a slave-based economy, and because it had a slave-based economy, um, any threat to that economic situation, that economic stability, was a threat to the way of life and the ability to generate money. And this was primarily, by the way, for rich white plantation owners. Uh, a good number of, as I mentioned just a couple minutes ago, a good number of poor white individuals who had small farms uh, were not necessarily 100% invested in this, except for the reasons that I also mentioned a couple minutes ago, because they had been made to uh, adopt racist attitudes towards slaves because it uh, somewhat made them feel elevated. So again, we can talk about the reasons why, 
but at heart, the reason is going to be slavery. Um, it's tied into states' rights. It's tied into the economy. It, it's the thing that drives everything else. There are other reasons as well. Uh, the, the, the American Civil War, I'm going to do this again as briefly as possible, but it was foreseen by the founding fathers. They knew that uh, the North and the South might eventually go to war over this. And in fact, they you know, had kind of a devil's bargain because they had just finished the American Revolution and the South was sort of rattling and saying like, hey, we, you know, we want to make sure that we keep slavery. And, uh, you know, a lot of the founders owned slaves themselves. By the way, Washington was quite ruthless uh, and relentless in pursuing his own slaves. Uh, he even had a timetable where if he carried them into a free state, he would send them briefly back home so he could reset the clock um, because there was a, a you know, a bit of a loophole where they could potentially gain their freedom and he knew it. So he kept a timetable in order to make sure that, uh, anyway, getting a little bit off there, but um, they knew. So when the South began to say, you know, we want to make sure that we keep slavery, they knew that it, this could immediately tear this new union to pieces. And so they decided to intentionally set it to the side and just cross their fingers and hope for the best. Um, they hoped that it would work out in the future. And as you see, you know, it did not. Uh, we, the North and the South went to war, and I don't think a single founding father would have been surprised by that. Uh, it was driven, again, by the slave-based economy. It was also driven by decisions like the Dred Scott decision, uh, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793. Uh, the, you know, it's very easy for somebody in the North to kind of just be neutral and like, uh, well, you know, slavery, it's down there in the South. I don't really know what it is. But when the Fugitive Slave Act was really... Um, uh, being enforced, you know, in, around about this period, the you know, just prior to the American Civil War, uh, it's no longer easy to be neutral because now you know you're fined or you're sent to jail if you aid or abet uh, an escaped slave in any way. Also, you have you know slave catchers who are roaming the North and just grabbing whoever they wanted to because th that's that's all they needed to do is just grab a person and say, oh, "This is an escaped slave. I'm going to take this person back." Uh, to the South, and very few people would challenge them. Um, political reasons, again, uh, abounded. Uh, so we could look at places like uh, out to the West. Um, there was uh, there were a number of states that were coming about at this time, and it would be important to understand whether these, these states were slaveholding states or non-slaveholding states. If they were slaveholding states, then they would likely vote with the South. If they were non-slaveholding uh, states, they would likely vote with the North. And so that was a, a pretty big deal to decide what these states were going to be. Again, whether they were going to be uh, slave holding or non-slave holding. And so a lot of the first shots were fired out in the West. Um, in one particular case, I believe it was in Kansas, somebody fired a cannon into a hotel because they were upset uh, at, at some of these arguments. Um, people from the North and the South would rush into the West and, and try to lay claim in order to, uh, to set up a slave or not slave holding uh, state. Because, again, the House of Representatives, in, in case you're not quite following here, the House of Representatives is, uh, uh, you know, every state gets two, two individuals in the Senate, but the House of Representatives is based on uh, population. And so the representation could be disproportionate. Uh, Rhode Island is not going to have as many people as, uh, to represent them as would California, for example. And so this does matter. It gives you clout and political power inside um, that particular branch of the United States government. So the, the entire conflict comes about, again, at heart, 
for reasons of, of slavery out in the West and the politics and the, uh, the way that, you know, people react and, and so forth and so on. Um, okay, I, I'm going to do a smorgasbord of a couple other quick things and then we're going to finish up. What I want to finish up with is, uh, I think, in, again, this is a culture-based class. And so I want to look at the culture itself. And we tend to look at Abraham Lincoln as this you know, emancipator and um, this really all-around wonderful man. And he, he was. I'm going to give him 100% credit on that. He was. But he, he didn't always necessarily you know, start in the best solution possible. And the reason I mentioned this is because he, he had the idea that a lot of the founders had as well, which is resettlement. Hey, if you know if we can't incorporate slaves or former slaves into the larger American culture, let's send them back to Africa. Now, the problem with that—I I hope that you see the problem with that—but the problem with that is it's sort of like saying to me, you know, I, and I, I don't think I have German in my background, but in my ancestry, but you know, hey, we're gonna take you and send you back to Germany because you know we, we're done with you. Um, I can't survive. I know nothing about Germany, nothing whatsoever about Germany. And uh, if you send me back to Germany right now, I, I would not be able to get by. And, you know, let's just assume that uh, Germany is, is not the place that it is today. I, I might even be shipped back and you know, locked up or something like that because I'm clearly an outsider and I'm not supposed to be there. So that that's not a very good idea, but it was tried. It was uh, talked about as a potential solution. And Lincoln and uh, others had, had discussed that. In fact, by the way, as a quick side note here too, <clears throat> Look up the country Liberia in Africa, because it is actually a result of uh, this idea. And they celebrate their American heritage. And if you look up the country, the flag is very much tied to the flag of the United States. And their dialect is very much uh, tied to the United States dialect as well. So there's your your factoid for the day. Um, One other thing that I want to mention in brief, because it's something that's come up in recent years, and it's very, very important because it's uh, it should have been brought up a lot sooner. And I I will admit that when I came through school, this was not something that was discussed. And I really think that that's too bad because it's something that we need to, to be able to focus on as well. And that is Juneteenth. Juneteenth is uh, uh, June the 19th. And it is uh, uh, this is a, a holiday because it represents when um, slaves in, in Texas were told that they were free. Because the American Civil War had ended in the spring, um, the news didn't quite make it out in there until June, um, and the Emancipation Proclamation, of course, had been issued about two years prior to that, or to, you know, prior to that. And because of this, that's why it's celebrated. So if you've been wondering, well, what is Juneteenth? I don't understand the big deal about this. Again, this is part of the culture of the overall event. It is the the uh, finalizing of of the broad work of the American Civil War, finally reaching people that it would uh, directly impact. So I want to be able to share that as well. And that brings me to the end of this episode. Uh, I, you know, I try to divide it on the American Civil War because I think that that, that gives us a nice uh, point that we could uh, cut and say, okay, here's how things were before and here's how things were after. That is where we will pick up the story in the very next episode. Uh, I, you know, I hope that this episode has been useful to you as you learn about this history. I, I won't say that I hope you enjoyed it. I don't think that there's much in here to you know, really 
enjoy. There's a, a lot of very heavy things inside of the content that we just covered. But I'll talk to you again, again about this next time and we'll pick up the story there. See you then.